Please join me, Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and in glory Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being confirmed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. May God and God's people be blessed by the reading of his word. Please be seated. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Larry. And uh, uh, we're thankful for the reading of God's Word. And uh, Justin, we're glad to, glad to have you back, brother. I hope that uh, those, they didn't work you over too hard in all that study. But it looks like you have fun dipping into all that. It's, it's good, isn't it? It's good to have you back. I uh, wanted to tell something on myself this week. Uh, and in relation to my job, we had a, uh, a federal uh, auditor with a grant program that we're involved with that came for a site visit and asked me to pull some documentation, just a little one-page thing, and I pulled it and looked to bring it to them, and I was astonished to see. I noticed three discrepancies that I didn't expect to see, and I was really troubled by it. So I brought it to the to the office they were in, and I was gearing up to try to explain these discrepancies, and as I held the sheet of paper with this uh, auditor looking at it, as I began to explain, I noticed that I'd made a mistake. I actually misread the paper. There weren't discrepancies at all. (laughs) So that's the good news, but the bad news is now I was embarrassed as to why I had to explain something that needed no explanation. So I had to try to make something up to not look like a fool right there, and... Thinking about that, I was reminded and convicted of the topic of our sermon today. Trusting in the flesh. Trusting in the flesh is something that Paul is warning us and Christ is warning us not to do. We trust in the flesh oftentimes to save our own flesh, don't we? 
And I was guilty of that in that instance. And so that's what we're going to be studying today. So go to the Lord with me in prayer, if you would. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the treasure that we have in your word. We thank you for this uh, letter to the Philippians that we have to study to see what uh, uh, what you'd have to speak to them and to speak to us, O oh God. Be present here as we know you are. Teach us, Lord, your truth. And Lord, I pray that uh, you uh, protect the words that are spoken here by me, that they're truthful and uh, that they're edifying and a blessing, O oh God. Help us to be blessed by your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are here in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Here we hear the, the tender fatherly words of Paul speaking to his beloved children in the faith. Paul knows he is facing the end of his days soon, that this might be his last letter to them, that he may not see them again. All pride is melted away. He dearly loves them, and he dearly loves writing to them. Also, all pretense is melting away. He is free to be blunt. He turns the edge up a bit as he writes. He is concerned for their safety. And here comes the warning. Verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Look out, he exclaims. Look out for the dogs. He calls the false teachers dogs and evildoers. And there is an interesting play on words here, a double meaning. Uh, the Greek word katatome, translated here, mutilators of the flesh or false circumcision, is juxtaposed with paratome, which is translated circumcision, in the next verse. Paul may have searched for the right word delivering, to deliver the meaning of harm and danger. He warns them against the error of trusting in the flesh. Trusting in righteousness that comes from carrying out the law in the flesh. A false righteousness. Why is this an issue? Why were mutilators of the flesh teaching new believers they must be circumcised to follow Christ? Why did anyone believe it? And why does Paul have to warn them against it? Well, to answer these questions, we're going to look at the background of this practice and what this passage teaches us about it. Uh, the background, uh, if we turn all the way back to Genesis chapter 17, you may, or I'll go through it myself here if you'd like. Genesis chapter 17 is where we see God introduce the practice of circumcision. Abram was 99 years old when the Lord appeared to him again and declared, I am God Almighty. God told Abram to walk blamelessly, that he would make a covenant with Abram to multiply him greatly, and Abram fell on his face. Verse 5 of chapter 17, God continues, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of many nations. God declares to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring. 
I will give you and your offspring the land of your sojournings for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Abraham was speechless, overwhelmed by the presence of God. Overwhelmed by God repeating and extending his covenant with Abraham now to his offspring, a multitude of nations, for an everlasting covenant. Unearned, undeserved favor and grace. And the blessing of God's glory poured over Abraham, a mere man, and his offspring forever. But God was not finished speaking. He went on to command a sign, a physical sign of this covenant, in the flesh of Abraham and his descendants. Here are the words of the Lord. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. What's that? Abraham must have thought. Did I hear that right? The Lord continued explaining. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised. Even those not of your offspring. Even those foreign born who are among you and your household. All males shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Hmm. An unmistakable, permanent, deeply personal symbol of God's covenant with Abraham. His children, his household, and all those who would eventually become the multitude of nations under the blessing of God's covenant. Circumcision represented total devotion. It represented cutting off and throwing away all that is empty, worthless, and unholy in exchange for the mark of God's everlasting covenant of favor and grace. And there was no question that this, was, that this sign was drastic, extreme. Abraham was 99 years old. Yet, Abraham obeyed God. He was circumcised that very day. Abraham and everyone in his household, including Ishmael, his 13-year-old son. And all the dozens of male workers and servants of his household. And to each and every one of these men, Abraham communicated the good news of the covenant of God in a way that they would never forget. Three generations later, Abraham's great-grandson stood trembling in a place in a palace courtroom. Fearing for their lives, they stood accused under the judgment of the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. They didn't know the prince was Joseph, their long-lost brother whom they betrayed. Scripture tells us that when the time was right, Joseph made all the Egyptians leave the room. And when he was alone with his brothers, he revealed his true identity to them. Some Jewish teachers theorized that Joseph secretly proved his identity to his brothers by revealing his circumcision. 
We can't know for sure, but it is plausible. Either way, Joseph and his brothers bore the mark of God's covenant relationship, and they remembered the covenant as they made peace with one another. During the time in Egypt and the wandering in the wilderness, the practice waned among the people of, of, of the Hebrews. We know because we find the command renewed in Joshua chapter 5, verse 2. God commanded Joshua to circumcise the men a second time. Thus God reinforced the covenant anew. Each generation continued the practice. After all, God had declared to Abraham, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Generations later, the covenant mark is, uh, continues to identify the people of God's covenant, the children of Abraham. When David, generations later, as the kingdom began uh, uh, changed, now had a king over it, a King Saul, David met with this giant Goliath who was ha- uh, speaking curses and slurs at the, at the Hebrew army. And do you know that David had one, only one name, a slur that he used against Goliath? Do you know what it was? It was the pejorative reference that Goliath was an uncircumcised Philistine. Over time, purpose and meaning of the symbol began to drift. But the physical practice became symbolic of the whole law. An outward sign that gave the appearance of observance of the whole law. And eventually it became, it became the whole law. It became something that no Jewish father ever dared neglect. <laughs> you could get by if you occasionally worked on the Sabbath or ate unclean food or secretly broke any of the many other laws. Usually no one would notice or remember. But if you neglected to circumcise your male child, eventually someone would notice. And it would mean rejection and exclusion from the covenant. Or more likely, rejection and exclusion from the community. Generations after Abraham and Moses and David, a young mother and father in Bethlehem prepared to take their newborn son to Jerusalem for their purification according to the laws of Moses, Luke 2.22. A few days after the miraculous birth and the glorious appearing of a host of angels and a star and adoring worshiping shepherds, Joseph and Mary must have begun preparing to take the infant Jesus back to Jerusalem and the temple. Is he wrapped warm and dry? Will the weather hold off? These are Joseph's thoughts, I'm sure. Can we make it there before the eighth day? Do we have money for the offering? Do we have enough food? Mary and Joseph brought their son Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem on the eighth day. They sacrificed two doves. Simeon and Anna blessed him, and the infant child Jesus was circumcised, a symbolic member of the covenant of God. This issue was one of the earliest and highest controversy of the early followers of Jesus Christ. It was no issue for the early Christians. They were raised to be obedient to the law of Moses. Now think about this. The Jews were already accustomed to obeying these laws. And so when they began to trust in Christ, they didn't have to ask if they needed to become Jews. They already were. But to the Gentiles, 
That was a major question. In their culture, the families, in the Jewish culture, their families and institutions reinforced all these laws. For a Jew trusting in Jesus for salvation, he could still go through the motions of obedience to the law and no one would notice much difference. However, for the Gentile convert, they were not living according to the laws of Moses and it was immediately noticeable. (laughs) And these early churches began to blend cultures. And the Gentiles didn't know the feast days. They didn't know the rules. They didn't know the laws. They brought bacon to the potluck dinners. <laughs> Unashamedly. They scheduled baseball games on the Sabbath. Well, everybody knows they had baseball back then, right? It's God's game after all. They didn't know all the old psalms by heart either. When it came time to sing the old 100, they didn't know it. And so this became a critical crisis. In fact, you'll study that the the first major doctrinal council recorded in Acts chapter 15 was about this very issue. Basically, how Jewish must the Gentiles become? They weren't making up rules. They were just prayerfully seeking to discern the will of God on this question. And Paul himself, still learning to follow Christ, encouraged Timothy to become circumcised. Acts chapter 16, verse 3. Paul wanted to hear, quoted here, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father, that's Timothy's father, was a Greek. So, here we have a ritual that was commanded by Almighty God as a sign of his everlasting covenant with Abraham and his offspring forever, a sign given before the Levitical priesthood, if you know what I mean by that, and fourth, uh, practiced widely among the people of God, and fifth, even Jesus was circumcised. Earlier I asked the question, why would anyone... uh, Why would anyone... teach that you had to become circumcised to follow Christ? Why would anyone believe it? Why did Paul have to warn anybody? (laughs) The real question is, why not? Why not? Well, what what they had seen over time was that this sign had become a sign, and only a sign. Let's think for an example. Here in our church, we've had a lot of changes. In fact, one of the things we've changed recently is we changed the sign out front. I don't know if it, has anybody, how many of you have not noticed that we changed the new sign out front? There are a few of us that hadn't noticed. Yeah, maybe we hadn't noticed. We, we live here, right? So we don't really notice the signs coming in and out as much as people who drive past see the sign. But what if all we had was a sign? And the sign was out there, but there was no, there was no church. There was no community of believers. There was no gathering. There was no worship here. There was no teaching. There was no life following Christ. What if we didn't send people from here to preach the gospel and teach the world? What if all we had was the sign? And we felt like, well, that's enough. It's official. We got a permit for it. The city of Ovilla says we're a church. We're a church. And now all we had was the sign. Well, that sign would become an idol and would actually stand between us and serving our Lord and Savior. 
Well, this is what this, this symbol and this sign had become. It had become just a sign. And it had become an idol. And it stood between those serving and following their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 3. Philippians verse 3. Yes, we still are in Philippians chapter 3, by the way. Philippians verse 3. So uh, Paul now turns to what he calls the true circumcision. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. And glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. Here we have the teaching of of Jesus and of the early church and of Scripture to us that comes even even from back in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 12 through 16. It speaks about a true circumcision, a circumcision of the heart, a circumcision of the heart. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God and walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord. This is Deuteronomy chapter 10. Belonging to heaven, or and to keep all the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and earth, or heaven and the heaven of heavens and earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set in set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise there the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. So, the true worshipers are those who worship by the Spirit of God. There's at least these, there's at least these three marks of the, of the true worshipers, the true circumcision that Paul's talking about. The first... They worship by the Spirit of God. John 4.23 says, But the hour is coming and now it and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Uh, the second is that they glory in Christ Jesus. John 1.14 And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And even in this letter to Philippians, uh, chapter 1, verse 26 says, So that in me you may have ample cause. Now remember, this is Paul in still part of his lengthy introduction to this this letter. He writes to the Philippians, In me you may have ample cause to, what? Glory in Christ Jesus. Because of my coming to you again. So you see the the marks of a true worshiper are that when someone observes our life or my life or anything that I may do, it's not me that receives the glory. It's not even me that seeks the glory or even should have the glory. Hopefully, when when we see someone being obedient to Christ, the glory is Christ. The glory is in Christ. Praise God. 
And the third category is they put no confidence in the flesh. Put no confidence in the flesh. I found a, a good list written by Michael Kelly of Lifeway Ministries of some clues for folks who, um, who actually are, are putting confidence in the flesh. If you want to find out, okay, okay, how do I know if I'm putting confidence in the flesh? Because usually if I am, I'm fooled and I don't see it in myself, right? That's probably, that's usually how it goes. So here's some clues. Examine your heart and ask yourself if you, if you have these clues in your life. Do you say to yourself, uh, when you see other people in their failings or in their sins or in their wickedness, you say, well, it won't happen to me or it can't happen to me. That can't happen to me. I'm not going to fall victim to that. Well, pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall, according to Proverbs sixteen eighteen. Uh, number two, you might say, oh, I'm too good for that. I'm too good for that. <laughs> Are you? <laughs> Romans twelve three says, For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you, do not think him of himself more highly than he ought to think. And uh, third, I can do it alone. That's another mark of someone who's trusting in the flesh. I can do it alone. Proverbs 27, 6 says, tells us, The wounds of a friend are trustworthy, but the kisses of an enemy are excessive. The wounds of a friend are trustworthy, but the kisses of an enemy are excessive. So, the mark of someone trusting in the flesh is, is reluctant to fellowship closely with other believers, to meet closely with other believers, to share needs for accountability with other believers. I ask you, Find the opportunity. There are many opportunities here in this body of Christ and other uh, opportunities you have to fellowship with other believers to invite, prayerfully invite, and open your heart and the needs that you have to others to share how you need people to pray for your shortcomings and your weaknesses and your, uh, your, your, your trusting in the flesh. Because, listen, I can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. If you're trying to, it's trusting in the flesh. Verse, let me repeat those uh, questions one more time. It can't happen to me. I'm too good for that. I can't do it alone. If these are your theme songs, then you're trusting in the flesh. All right, Philippians chapter 4, or chapter 3, verse 4. Uh, now Paul goes on. And uh, begins a uh, going through a list of things for the verse four through six. He sets up his self righteous credentials, kind of like bowling pins. <laughs> Why do we set up bowling pins? To knock them down. Hopefully, we set them up to knock them down, right? So he sets these things up just to knock them down. He sounds like he's bragging, but he's not. He's saying, "Look, I've been there. I've done that." I got the t-shirt. It doesn't work. I, you're wasting your time if you're trying it. Here's his list of self-righteous acts. Uh, he says, circumcised on the eighth day. Well, God commanded him to do that, or commanded at least Abraham and his descendants to do that. Uh, but remember, 
that act itself is beyond Paul's control. He had no, <laughs> he had no influence over that. It was done to him on the behalf of, a, or on his behalf by others. Second, he says he's of the people of Israel. Again, beyond his control. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. That is a special source of self-righteous pride, even among the, uh, the, among the Hebrew people. Uh, the, the specific tribe, pride in his specific, specific tribe. Also beyond his control. In verse 6, he says, as to zeal. In other words, I was not just a, any old Jew. I was a really, really good one. And this is his evidence giving for that. He says, I was even a very, uh, ad, uh, a very, uh, committed persecutor of Christians. The evil, he even names the evil of persecuting Christians in the church as part of his pride in the flesh. He identifies himself as blameless under the law. Which, if you remember back in Genesis chapter 17, this is the term that God said to Abraham when he delivered this, uh, this covenant to begin with. Blameless under the law. But now in verse 7 and 8, we see the real theme song of this section. The true theme song of this section. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. This is the central part of this this passage. You know, there's an interesting parallel the the hymn or the hymn of praise and glory to Christ in chapter 2 of this letter describes how Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself and humbled himself and took on the the took on the the countenance of a servant and it go describes his descent to earth and his glorification in his death and burial and resurrection to lordship over Overall, this actually parallels that in a way where Paul says, you know, in, in becoming more like Christ, I too find that all of these things that I used to trust in, none of that is worth anything to me. I empty myself of that for the surpassing value of gaining Christ. And look here at the word because. I count everything as loss because or for the cause of. This is the now present existing cause of considering the past a loss. It shows that counting everything as loss is the effect. And knowing Christ Jesus is the cause of that effect. Let me repeat that. It shows that counting everything as loss is the effect. But knowing Christ Jesus and the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus is the cause of that effect. Now, if we're trusting in the flesh, we get that backwards. Let me see if I can illustrate that a little bit. Um, 
when, uh, let's say you, um, have take, you've, you have, uh, uh, canceled your, uh, you cancel, uh, let's say I canceled my golf outing with my buddies on Saturday to instead go to a, a, a plant show with my wife. Right? Because I love my wife so dearly. I did that, right? Now, if during that time I'm reminding her, listen, I canceled my golf thing for this. I really want to make sure you appreciate me. I really want to see that this is going to really have the right effect I was going for. You see how this is? You counted something as loss hoping to get an effect. You understand the difference there? Does that work? Guys, does that work out for us like that? No, No, it does not. It does not. No, we dearly love our wives. I dearly love my wife. I can't think of anything I'd rather do than spend Saturday morning looking at things with shopping with her. Right? Am I right? You know, unfortunately, in my, I'm not a very good example for that, but I think you'll kind of get the point. But Christ said the dear, the, the example that Christ, or the, uh, the surpassing value of knowing Christ is worth losing all of this. There's another passage. There are many passages in the Bible, but here's another one that I think helps illustrate this even better. And I'm going to turn to there, uh, Luke chapter 7. And it's kind of lengthy, but I wish you'd bear with me. I think it really illustrates this point. If we can turn to Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 50, this is a passage where a sinful woman's sins were forgiven. And this is a true account of something that was observed in Jesus' life when he was here on earth. And it occurred in the area, probably in the area around uh, Capernaum or Nain, because the events that happened just previous to this were, were there. Uh, we have a couple of folks who traveled to Israel recently. Anybody travel, anybody visit Capernaum, Capernaum or Nain? So I haven't been here, so maybe you guys have been here and see, can tell me what, tell us what it's like in another time, but yes. So this, uh, this uh, would have occurred somewhere around there. There was a man of the Pharisees whose name was Simon. Not the same Simon that we know uh, uh, elsewhere. This, as far as I remember, this is the only the only uh, time that he's mentioned in this. So one of the Pharisees, this is Luke chapter 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined and reclined at table. So let me help set the setting here a little bit. We don't know a lot about this person or his uh, home but he had Jesus there and several guests and there was indication that he also had servants so he probably had some some substance or wealth or some position that he was able to host uh, guests at his home and it probably wasn't the first time he was probably accustomed to hosting guests at his home so this probably happened more often uh, than not so this occasion for some reason this Pharisee this teacher of the law decided that he wanted to invite Jesus just to check him out, I guess, to see what he was really like, to see what he was all about. Well, Jesus arrives and uh, on the scene, just like some of the other guests had arrived. And, of course, this Pharisee's servants probably knew who Jesus was. They'd probably heard of Jesus and probably heard of some of the miracles. They were probably very excited that Jesus was going to be a guest there, and they gathered up the, uh, you know, the, the, the water to wash his feet and the, uh, the oil to anoint him, and... With a glance, or with a wave of the hand, or maybe even a curt word, Simon said, said, no, 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 hold off, 
Let's don't, don't honor this man yet. Simeon was waiting to see, did he really want to be associated with this Jesus fellow? So he refused to welcome him that way. Behold, in verse 37, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Pause there for a minute. So now, a woman of the street who was a sinner comes into the home. We can only assume uninvited, but boldly comes uninvited and appears. Now, I'm speculating here, but I think it's plausible. She was local. People recognized her. And listen, I'll bet there were some people there who were afraid that she would recognize them. Too, right? So some people were shuffling their feet, wondering if they should hide their face or make an excuse. What's she doing here? Why did she come? She looks agitated. What's going on? Standing behind him, Jesus, at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. The Pharisee said to himself, If this man was a prophet, he would know who who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. Do you notice how he's really... This Pharisee is uh, aware of someone else's sin. He's very highly aware of other people's sin. She is a sinner. And Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. The one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And with her, and with, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were, with, who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And she said to the woman, or and he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So unpack this just a, just a tad because we must. Now, um, when he's turned to, he turned to speak to the man and gave him the example, what we see is, a man, Simeon, who had all the outward appearances of righteousness, the outward qualifications to trust in his flesh for his own fleshly righteousness, which, as the passage here says, does not lead unto forgiveness of sins or salvation. It just does not. 
But we see a woman who is willing for the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. Left everything. Her dignity, her shame. She boldly walks in the room. She's not concerned about the sin of the other people in that room. Her concern is only for her sin. And for this Savior who can redeem her sin and forgive her sin and for giving honor and glory to one man in that room, Jesus Christ. Now he speaks to her at that moment and forgives her sins. And the bystanders say, who is this who can forgive sins? That shows that they don't know, who's, they don't know who they're eating dinner with. They, don't not, they do not know the man they're sharing a meal with. But this woman did. And he forgave her sins. He said, your faith, her faith in him is what forgave her sins. Go in peace. So now, here we have a few uh, bullets that we can take, glean from this story. Here's the example of what trusting in the flesh looks like. Trusting in the flesh looks like, okay? First, it's high concern over appearing righteous before others. When we trust in Jesus, we have a low concern over the appearance of righteousness before others. Because we accept and know that we're not righteous. Christ is. Our righteousness only comes from Him. It's a reflection of Him. Not ourselves. Second, someone trusting in the flesh has a low concern for, the, for righteousness before God. In other words, they're less convicted of sin in their own life. They look past it. They excuse it. They ignore it. I do this. I am susceptible to this, excusing my own sin, ignoring it. Trusting in Jesus has a high concern for righteousness before God. Not because it's unattainable, but because it matters. It matters. The holiness and the purity and the righteousness that Christ gives matters. Those who trust in the flesh are more, more likely to just like Jesus. Let me say that carefully. They're more likely to just like Jesus, but not love Jesus. They like Jesus, but they don't love him. Those who trust in Jesus are more interested in loving Jesus and liking Jesus. Lastly, uh, on my list here, uh, they're more aware of those who trust in the flesh are more aware of others' sin than my. If I'm trusting in the flesh, I'm more aware of others' sin than my own sin. I'm more aware of others' sin than my own sin. I'm more bothered or angered by others' sin than my own sin. Jesus said, "Don't do that." Don't look at your brother and say, you've got a speck in your eye when you've got a moat in your own, or a, a limb or a tree trunk in your own eye. But those who trust in Jesus are more aware of their own sin than of others' sin. All right. So let me uh, go through to, to the end here. And verse 9, uh, when, when Paul is reminding us that he's left, he left all for the surpassing value. Remember, his... His name as a leader among the Jews was gone. His credentials were gone. He was in danger of his life and being arrested. In fact, that's where he was headed. They thought him was a troublemaker. They even were angry that he brought people to the temple. 
his credentials as a Jewish leader were gone by the time he devoted his life to Christ. Christ makes all things new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. So, his desire now is to know him. To know him and become more like him. Verse 10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings and become like him in his death. So, uh, Paul was now realizing that in his life, he, that even this time in his life, when he began to come to the end of his life, to, begin to, be, to, to, to succumb to this suffering, that he now, it wasn't even his own suffering that he was worried about. It was, wasn't even his own suffering that he was focused on. He says, ah, I can now even become aware of my participation and my identification with Christ. That I may know him and become like him even in his death. And verse 11, that by any means possible that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Again, this in no way means that you earn your way to resurrection, or that Paul saying he was earning his way to resurrection. Attain here means to get resurrection, not to take. It was to get, not to take. By any means possible is the phrase that Paul uses here. Paul is saying that his death, even as dramatic and final and as, and, and, uh, as ultimate as this can be, is only an ultimate death of his flesh. He is happy now for the death, the coming death of his flesh, that he will not fear death, knowing that he will be present with Christ Jesus. Friends, oh, that we can know Jesus. Oh, that we can know Jesus. That we can know Jesus. To forget all, to forget the shame, to forget the conviction, to forget the... the, the the glaring stares of others, to walk past the shame, to ignore the sins of others, to carry the bottle of ointment to the feet of Jesus and weep at his feet, to welcome a future, to welcome the death of our flesh, that we can be with him, that we can be with him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just ask, even now, Father, Thank you for this passage, drastic and as extreme as it might seem. To leave all, to consider everything a loss. Lord, overwhelm us with the surpassing value of knowing you, of knowing Christ Jesus. Lord, we just ask that, you're, that knowing you will push all value we have of flesh and all dependence on flesh right out the door right out into the trash where it belongs. Forgive us, Lord, for, being, for trusting in the flesh and help us to, to leave it, Lord, and trust in you and you alone. Thank you, Lord. It's in the precious name of the one and only living Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.